Reflections on the Bible Creation, Fall, and Sacrifice by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 6 And so Pilate says, In that case, what should I do with the man you call King of the Jews? And they say, Crucify him. And Pilate says, What harm has he done? And they make no response to that. Their response to it is crucify him. In other words, they don't deal with the accusation at all. At this point in the frenzy, accusations are superfluous. Accusations and and witnessing and evidence and all of that is something that happens at a much calmer stage in this process. But at this point, the sacrificial appetite is whetted to the extent that all they want is their victim to die. And so they handed him over to be crucified. And then you have the story of the soldiers. Again, this is, this is amazing that this would be in the gospel. I think it's amazing that the Gethsemane story is in the gospel. And I think it's amazing that this mock coronation is in the gospel. The soldiers led him away to the inner court of the palace, that is the praetorium, called the whole cohort together. They dressed him in purple and twisted some thorns into a crown and put it on him. And they began saluting him, Hail, King of the Jews. They struck his head with a reed and spat upon him, and they went down on their knees to do him homage. Now, this is, again, it's gratuitous. It may well be here because it actually happened. The point is, it's here, and it's pretty amazing, I think, it's here from a purely structural point of view, from a purely structural point of view. And, I, and I, the best way to draw that out is to read to you something that I read when we, I think it must have been when we were talking about the Gospel of John, and I won't spend much time on it, but I'll just read it to you very quickly so you'll see the parallel. And what we have to do is to see the anthropology behind all this. What does it mean to be king of the Jews? What does it mean to be king? And is there a relationship between the victim and the king? And the fact that it would come out right in the middle of the passion story is unbelievable. Now, uh, so I'm, what I'm going to quote to you is, is from a, an eyewitness account by a French anthropologist, Dujalou, in the late 19th century, uh, an account of something he witnessed in equatorial Africa And he says that there were many uh, kingship arrangements that were very similar to what he saw on this occasion. And he recounts a number of them. And there was another anthropologist, Vesterman, who found the same motif in a number of these same West African cultures. Uh, And it's by no means limited to that that region. It's just that, that in the late 19th century, those were the places where vestiges of this ancient uh, system were still to be found. So here's what Dujalou says about the, the, the selection of a new king in this one tribe. The man who is selected doesn't know that he's been selected. He is walking on the beach. They surround him in a dense crowd, then begin to heap upon him every manner of abuse that the worst of mobs could imagine. These are the, the words of the anthropologist who saw it with his own eyes. Some spat in his face, some beat him with their fist and kicked him. Others threw disgusting objects at him, while those unlucky ones who stood on the outside and could reach the poor fellow only with their voices assiduously cursed him. 
a stranger would not have given a cent for the life of him who was presently to be crowned. Then all became silent, and the elders of the people rose and said solemnly, and the people repeating after them, Now we choose you for our king. We engage to listen to you and to obey you. Now what we're getting here is the passion story. If you took a black and white photograph of the passion story and then took the negative of that photograph, that's what we're getting here. You see? In the passion story, Jesus comes into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, the celebrations, Hosanna in the highest, da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da. A week later, everything reverses and he's the victim despised by all. And in this culture, and there are many others like it, and in the most ancient world, they were probably everywhere, you get the same process, exactly the same dynamic, only it's, it's, uh, it's, the valences are reversed and it begins with the sacrificial stuff and then suddenly is transformed into kingship. And the next line from what I quoted you is, he was then dressed in a red gown and received the greatest marks of respect from all who had just now been abusing him. And to make it even more interesting, he was then later put to death at the end of his reign. The point of this is to say that the, go- that there is, that the gospel has a kind of lucidity at the anthropological level that I think simply cannot be explained. King of the Jews. King. This is a revelation of the whole, the whole anthropology that it's overthrowing. So they take him out to be crucified. He's crucified with two robbers, and now you have everybody jeering at him. Passerbys jeered at him. They shook their heads and said, Ah, so you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Then save yourself. Come down from the cross. The chief priests and scribes mocked him among themselves in the same way. Notice that the, that the unwashed mob and the elite priesthood, the gospel says, are doing the same thing. You see, at some, at, at the, at, as this thing begins to reach its climax, all the social distinctions are washed away. And everybody is, do, is jeering in this, in this vulgar way. So the chief priests and scribes said, he saved, him, he saved others, they said. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross now for us to see it and believe. And then even those who were crucified with him taunted him. In Mark's gospel, you don't get the good and bad thief. Everybody is in on it. Everybody is in on it. It's total. But the, the point to be made here, and I think the point that Mark is making to his community, is that the, everybody, the crowd, the unwashed crowd and the elite high priest and priest, priestly clan, they all are saying the same thing, namely, come down from the cross, and then we will believe that you are the Christ. In other words... What they cannot believe, what is the scandal, is that the 
Christ could be the crucified one or the crucified one could be the Christ. And that is precisely what has to be held on to. The messianic nature of Jesus' mission is not something incidental to the crucifixion. That is what the Messiah came to do. It isn't that he came to say wise things and in the course of it he got caught up in a in a controversy and was executed. But the messianic work was, as John's gospel has it, to be raised up on the cross and from that point to call all humanity to himself. And these people are first century Christians, many of whom were saying, let's downplay the cross. And then at the climax of the Passion, the ninth hour, darkness is spread over the face of the earth. Jesus cries out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, deserted me? And this is the first time he calls God, God in Mark's Gospel. He always calls God Father. Why have you forsaken me? Again, would this be in a story that was an attempt to mythologize? You see? What is this a story of? This is the story of human agony at the hands of a mob. And Jesus gave a loud cry, a scream. I think we should translate it there. Jesus gave a scream and breathed his last. And Mark is the first gospel, as you know, if you don't include Paul. And he doesn't have any of the embroidery. He just has the bare thing. He gave a scream and died. And we still don't get it. I mean, we get it, you know, on every Good Friday we get it for a few minutes, but most of the time we don't get it. He gave a scream and died. Now, the next verse, Jesus gave a loud scream and breathed his last. Next verse, and the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. That's pretty powerful. The veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. The sacrificial shrine was undermined for all time. The world of sacrifice has been turned on its ear. It will still, like, you know, it will still uh, convulse its way through human history in one form or another, always under, anytime it's being influenced by this revelation, always trying to, uh, to humanize and, and, and temporize its, its effects and so on. But fundamentally, the, the, the damage was done right at that moment. The sacrificial apparatus is compromised decisively for all time. The veil of the temple is rent from top to bottom. The veil is the veil that the author of Leviticus was talking about where it says, Tell Aaron, your brother, that he must not enter the sanctuary beyond the veil in front of the throne of mercy that is over the ark whenever he chooses or he may die. That's the sacred. 
the sacred precinct, the whole sacrificial apparatus which generates, the, the sacralizes and holds the world together on the basis of that sacral power is shattered. The, the veil of the temple is rent from top to bottom. Next sentence, the centurion standing in front of him had seen how he died and said, in truth, this man was the son of God. Now the centurion is a, is a Gentile. He's not a Jew. He's a pagan. So you have a scream and a death and the sacrificial apparatus is destroyed and the Gentiles start getting the message. It's unbelievable the economy of, this, of these few verses. The sacrificial apparatus is exploded. It is now, it is no longer the private, the, the, this revelation is no longer c contained within Jewish culture, nor is it, can, it be, can it be perpetuated sacrificially within the Jewish temple. It's shattered and scatters to the ends of the earth because it is so central to human existence. What has just been exposed is so central to human existence that everybody can get it. Everybody can get it. You don't have... It's so... Uh, it so goes to the heart of the human dilemma that you, you don't even have to have had the Old Testament preparation to realize its power and centrality. Now, the best way to realize it is to have the Hebrew Scriptures as preparation for it because they do prepare for it. But suddenly, you have a centurion with no preparation whatsoever. And I must say, he doesn't exactly have it all figured out. We, we don't either. But he recognizes, he's Mark's marker for the fact that this thing is going to the ends of the earth at the, exactly the moment that the veil of the temple is rent. There is an appendix that was added to the gospel that softens the ending, but it was added in the second century and is not part of the gospel itself. So here's how the gospel actually ends. Mary of Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome go to anoint the body. And on the way, you know, they're asking, wonder who's, how, who's going to roll the stone away. When they get there, they look, they could see that the stone had been rolled away. And on entering, they saw a young man in a white robe seated on the right-hand side and they were struck with amazement. And he said to them, there is no need for alarm. Now, keep that in mind. There's no need for alarm. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See, here's the place where they laid him. But you must go and tell his disciples and Peter. He is going before you to Galilee. It is there you will see him just as he told you. And the women came out and ran away from the tomb because they were frightened out of their wits and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. End of gospel. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. They were terrified. They said nothing. Now this, this figure just said, you're, you're to go and tell the others, Jesus, Peter and the disciples, that he's going before you to Galilee, just as he told you. 
they ran away terrified, said nothing because they were afraid. So we have two things. We have the this figure saying there's no need for alarm and we have the women being terrified. And I would say that we live in between those two statements. Both are valid responses to the situation. You needn't be alarmed and if you're not afraid, you didn't get it. What does it mean now to live in the world after the cross? It means to live without that sacrificial apparatus that it fatally and decisively compromises. In this, go- in this gospel, as it stands, not including the later edition, the resurrection is completely affirmed. It's announced with the words, He is not here. So, perhaps we should appreciate that a little bit. The resurrection is announced with the words, He is not here. I think it comes closer to to the actual Christian experience in history of the, of the discovery and the rediscovery of the resurrection. And I would say, for the most part, the resurrection is discovered or rediscovered when we realize suddenly that he is not here. He has gone before you to Galilee. He's already out there revealing doing the work, the paraclete, you see, in John's gospel, it would be uh, the, the spirit of the risen Christ, the paraclete, is already there doing the work, going before you. He is not here. When they go to the tomb, you know, they're, gonna, they're going to anoint the body and then they're going to come outside the tomb and they're going to set up a little shrine and they're going to start a religion, a conventional religion not because they're into conventional religion, because it's inevitable. And there inside the tomb is one who says, He is not here. That's what the resurrection is. He is not here. And He is not here connects all the way back to Abraham. The journey continues. If you hang around this tomb long enough, if there's a body in here wrapped the way you hoped it would be, and you anoint it the right way and come outside and set up your little, your little shrine outside, pretty soon this tomb will turn into the Tower of Babel. And meanwhile, we have a choice between that kind of religion and Abraham's. And he has gone before you to Galilee. He, you will meet him there. Where's Galilee? Galilee is in the north. Galilee is the stepping off point for the rest of the world. The veil of the temple has been rent. The centurion says he is the son of God. The thing has exploded at the center and shot out into the, into the rest of the world. And now they're told at the, at the tomb, he has gone before you to Galilee. The journey is still underway. Jesus in John's gospel 
utters the words, it is accomplished at the moment of his death. And the question, of course, is what is accomplished? In the Gospel of Mark, two things happen at the instant Jesus dies. The first is that the veil of the temple is rent from top to bottom. And this rending of the temple veil has huge religious, cultural, and historical ramifications as the New Testament writers, astonishingly, were able to intuit, couched though their intuitions were in the idiom of the intertestamental period. The second thing that happens at the death of Jesus in Mark's Gospel is that the centurion, who is a Gentile and not a Jew, recognizes the crucified one as the Son of God. The implication of this, of course, is that the message now has begun to go out to the whole world. It is no longer uh, simply something that belongs to the Jewish people, to Israel, but belongs to the whole world. So you get the death of Jesus, the collapse of the sacrificial cult, and the spreading of the, of the biblical revelation to the ends of the earth, all with unbelievable economy in Mark's gospel. All happens at the same moment. And this, of course, is the evangelist talking about not so much the event, the historical event, but its implications. And he's able, as I say, astonishingly, to intuit the significance and the scope of the implications of Jesus' crucifixion. So I want to talk about the rending of the temple veil and what it means. First of all, we have to try to understand what the temple veil is. And so the question would be, when did the temple veil come into play? One could choose a number of texts, even within the biblical tradition, to try to point up the origin of, this, of, of the reality that is, that is represented symbolically by the temple veil. But I'll just refer to the, to the one in Exodus 32, and it's the golden calf. Moses goes up the mountain, the, the, the people fall into idolatry, and Moses comes down the mountain, he hears them, and he says, he stood at, now I'm quoting from Exodus 32, he stood at the gate of the camp and shouted, who is for Yahweh to me? And all the sons of Levi rallied to him, and he said to them, this is the message of Yahweh, the God of Israel, gird on your sword, every man of you, quarter the camp from gate to gate, killing one his brother, another his friend, another his neighbor. The sons of Levi carried out the command of Moses, and of the people about 3,000 men perished that day. Today, Moses said, you have won yourselves investiture as priest of Yahweh at the cost one of his son, another of his brother, and so he grants you a blessing today. The priesthood, the sacrificial priesthood in this text is born of the sacralizing of an act of mob violence. The Perpetrators of the mob violence are ordained priests because they have shown themselves capable of the priestly act, which is a violent act in its original setting. So the veil is sacralized mob violence, turned into a sacrificial priesthood, a priesthood which has enough sacral power and prestige to preside over cultural harmony. In other words, it's a turning of violence into peace. So, when we think of the veil of the temple, we should think of its anthropological roots. And so what I would like to do is today talk about what it means 
to say that the veil of the temple has been rent because we live in a world in which the veil of the temple has been rent. That's, that's, what's, that's the problem with the world. And it's, it's both, it's both uh, a liberation and a very dangerous situation. So that at the end of Mark's Gospel, for example, when the, when the angel, so to speak, in the, t- in the tomb says to the women who've come to anoint the body, do not be alarmed. He's right. But when the women run off and say nothing to anyone because they are afraid, they're right too. It's a, the situation in which the veil of temple has been rent is one in which people of faith should not grow alarmed. On the other hand, there's something very alarming about the situation. So I want to investigate that today. And I want to begin with the story of Susanna in Daniel 13. And what I want to say is that the story of Susanna in Daniel 13 is the story of life before the rending of the temple veil. Life when certain things could happen which can no longer happen quite as easily as they could then. And in addition to that, Daniel 13 is an amazingly perceptive study of the origin of the social melodrama. The social melodrama that is born, as René Girard would say, in mimetic desire and that climaxes in a demand for a sacrificial victim. The community's demand for a sacrificial victim. So the story is rich with detail for illustrating that. And the story is written, comes, comes from maybe the second century before Christ. So it's an ancient story, but the author of this story, while no Shakespeare perhaps, nevertheless sees certain social dynamics, or at least his story allows us to see them. So I want to I look at it in some detail. So here's how it begins. In Babylon, there lived a man named Joachim. He had married Susanna, daughter of Hilkiah, a woman of great beauty. Joachim was a very rich man and had a garden attached to his house. Gardens attached to their, one's house is a, a form of uh, prestige, meaning very rich. The Jews would often visit him since he was held in greater respect than any other man. So the story starts out, and appropriately so, talking about Joachim, the the husband of Susanna. Now, Susanna, we're told right away, is strikingly beautiful, and her husband is both very rich and very well respected, the most respected person. So he has primary social prestige, and we have to keep that in mind because it is, it, that is the beginning of the process of envy which gives rise to the whole rest of the story. We don't notice it because... We don't, we, the connection is not made. As I say, the author of this story is not Shakespeare. If the author of this story was Shakespeare, it would become clearer than it is, but it's already pretty clear. So the next verse in the story says, Two elderly men had been selected from the people that year to act as judges. These men were often at Joachim's house, and all who engaged in litigation used to come to them. At midday, when everyone had gone, Susanna used to take a walk in her husband's garden. The two elders who used to watch her every day as she came to take her walk, gradually began to desire her. Now, it's very interesting, you know, that there are two of these men. Now, we know, we know, and we would know for sure if Shakespeare were writing this story, that, these, that the desire begins with the envy of her husband. The desire begins with the envy of her husband. Shakespeare would make that clear. 
Homer would even make that clear. The author of this story almost makes it clear because he begins by showing what a prestigious uh, figure he is. But then we have the question of why are there two? You don't need, now, you, you don't need two elders in order for this story to play itself out. Why are there two instead of one? Well, again, you go to Shakespeare and you realize that Shakespeare uses one device almost exclusively for heating his social melodramas to the boiling point. And that device is two people, friends, who reinforce each other's desire for one person. That's Shakespeare's genius for understanding something about desire that we have just begun to understand about. And I must say, it's in this story, not quite as consciously and as thoroughly as in Shakespeare, but it's here. There are two of these men, and structurally, you see, one of the things about the way we've studied the Bible in the past is the exegetes have gone to study its history, its language. For example, an exegete would say, well, here we have a word, and we know from other sources that this word was not used until the 4th century before the Common Era, and, and therefore we know that uh, it was... It, it was uh, written after that, and this is, you know, this is what exegetes do. They study the text in that way. And I would say we ought, and that's a perfectly, that's a good thing. Good, good information comes out of that enterprise. But we should study the text diagrammatically. We should study it as a blue, social blueprint. Say, okay, let's just, you know how you, in the game Clue, you know, when you look down and you see into the parlor and into the kitchen, you know, and into... You want to see how this thing lays out on a social grid. And here you have two elders. It's very important that it's two and not one. Because the passion that's awakened in this story is a passion of mimetic desire. It's mutual desire. Desires that converge on one object, turning those who awakened each other's desire and reinforced it into rivals with one another. And that's latent in this story, but it's, it's clearly visible. Here, however, the process has moved to the next stage, namely the friends who awakened and heightened each other's desire for the same object have become rivals, or we could say are in the process of becoming rivals. And at first they are only covertly so, but eventually they will become openly so. They won't in this story, but eventually they would, if this were Shakespeare, become openly rivals. That, they would become what Girard calls doubles. There's a clear indication of the process of doubling, what Girard calls doubling in this story. Two people desiring one object, and, and as a result of that conflicting desire, their relationship begins to move from one of friendship to one of rivalry, and finally it would, if it was allowed to run its course, turn into violence between the two. And Shakespeare does that all the time, and so do other great writers. Robert Hamilton Kelly says, quote, The appearance of doubles is a sign of the sacrificial crisis. Now, the sacrificial crisis is Girard's term for the social scene in which there's so much uh, friction and tension in the society that a latent demand for a sacrificial victim that will resolve their communal controversies begins to uh, emerge, you see. The sacrificial crisis is when 
our, there's so much tension that we begin to have an itch for a common enemy against whom we can, we can direct all of our animosity and therefore be at peace with one another once again. That's a sacrificial crisis. And I would say, even though the signs of it are latent here, there's warrant for designating this situation described in Daniel 13 as a budding sacrificial crisis. Okay, so the next verse says, these two elders threw aside reason, making no effort to turn their eyes to heaven. Now, the spirituality of our tradition tells us that the only way out of this mess that we're in is transcendence, is prayer, is a, is a connection to a transcendent God, to see one's life through God's eyes and not through the eyes of others. Sebastian Moore says, sin is seeing my life through other people's eyes. So here we're told about the two men. They make no effort to turn their eyes to heaven. Where do they turn them? You remember when we were doing Virginia Woolf's The Waves? The, the boys were all in their boarding school. They're looking up at the headmaster reading from the Bible. And Neville got tired of that. And he said, I'm not going to look up and, and think about all those things anymore. He looks down and immediately looks across and sees Percival, his new idol, another human idol, you see. And these men have simply looked across and seen Joachim, the rich man in town. It's exactly the same thing. And why have they done that? Because they made no effort to turn their eyes to heaven. So this story is, I'm using it for other purposes, but there's plenty of spirituality in this story, but it's between the cracks. So they do that, forgetting the demands of virtue. Both were inflamed by the same passion. Now that's right out of Shakespeare, right out of Girard, practically. Both were inflamed by the same passion. You think that that inflammation has anything to do with the, the, the fact that they're both there together, they're side by side, that, that they're watching, you know, you know my old analogy of the sail table, you stand across the sail table with somebody who's looking at something and you start thinking it might be interesting if there's only one of it left. Well, this, that's, the, it's that, that's the inflammation process and that's the passion that they're inflamed by. It said they were both inflamed by the same passion, but they hid their desire from each other for the same reason we hide ours at the sail table. <laughs> because if we reach for it, we know that the person will know it's more desirable and will reach for it. And we don't want that to happen until we can get it. But, see, this author of this story is not quite that clever. He says, they hid their desire from each other for they were ashamed to, ad to admit the longing to sleep with her. They were ashamed. They did, hid their desire because they were ashamed. Well, that implies to be ashamed implies moral qualms. I would say that moral qualms are not the strong suit of the men in this, uh, this story. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there's no reason to assume that, that that that's behind their determination to hide their desire. Why do they hide their desire? Well, they they hide it because they're hypocrites. Hypocrite in the sense, not in the typical sense we take it but in the sense of someone who knows that if he were to display his desire, it would only further inflame the identical desire that exists in his rival and therefore make the rival a more, a, a more formidable foe. You see what I mean? So, and that's what happens at the sale table. You see, we don't want to indicate that we want that object because we know the other person will reach for it and so on. Okay. 
The process whereby friends become rivals and then doubles is not often visible. But in this story, there's a humorous metaphor for the process. It goes like this. One day, having parted with the words, let us go home, it is time for the midday meal, they went off in different directions. <laughs> this is, they went off in different directions only to retrace their steps and find themselves face to face again. <laughs> and this is, the way, this, this is a clear indication that the doubles is occurring, that the doubling process is occurring because they are, they are telling each other, they are pretending that they are going in absolutely opposite directions, but it's only a matter of time before there they are glaring at each other. Now, this is a very precarious moment. So the question is, what's going to happen at this critical moment? Are they, are, are they going to declare openly their animosity and become rivals in the, in, uh, the sh typical Shakespearean sense? Well, it says, obliged to explain, they admitted their desire and agreed to look for an opportunity of surprising her alone. In other words, they're going to seduce her or rape her. Now, something has changed. They have become co-conspirators in a crime. And the crime is rape. Now, we should... The crime, as you know, as we're learning awfully late in the game, rape is a violent crime. It's only incidentally sexual. So, the, so the, we have to try to stay clear about what's happening here. Their rivalry for the moment has been subsumed in what appears to be sexual desire. But the rivalry hasn't disappeared, nor has the desire remained the same. The two men's rivalry and the violence latent in it has simply been redirected toward the object of their desire. Do you see that? The two men's rivalry and the violence latent in it has simply been redirected toward the object of their desire. They have salvaged their friendship by conspiring together against the one whom both desire. Now, it has to be admitted that this is such a tangled knot that it's hard to follow the separate threads. The truth is, of course, that, the, that they are not separate threads after all. The desire and the rivalry and the conspiracy are all products of the mimetic process, a psychological feedback loop for which the New Testament term is scandalon, the scandal. And one can become embroiled in this scandal at various stages, or one can find oneself in the scandal at various stages. Or the other word in the New Testament for it is Paul's word <coughs> desire, or the way Paul uses it, desire, in the New Testament, the word is epithumia, the root of which means, thumos means sacrifice. So desire, the root of the word desire is sacrifice. Remember now that each man's ultimate rival is Joachim, the husband of Susanna. Pilate in Mark's gospel, just to go back to something we talked about earlier, Mark in his gospel says of Pilate at the, at the trial of Jesus before Pilate, Quote, he realized it was out of jealousy that the chief priest had handed Jesus over. And again, here's what Robert Hammerson Kelly says about the Sanhedrin envy of Jesus. Quote, 
they do not desire something Jesus has. Rather, their own inner group rivalry can only be contained by the unanimous condemnation of the victim. So, they have turned what would be an intergroup rivalry. That's why all these forces that are right against Jesus, are, it, it's, it's inexplicable because they were all political and historical enemies. But in this case, they converged on him and, and they used him, the scapegoat, as a way of resolving these tensions. And I would say that's exactly what's happening in this story, which seems to us crazy under the circumstances because these men are now conspiring against one for whom they both have desire. The fact that they're conspiring to rape her should not mislead us into thinking they are not, they're conspiring to do anything other than make her a victim. They are obviously conspiring to make her a victim. Th this is a very strange thing. We should ask ourselves why it is in the ancient world that beautiful virgins were, were sacrificed. Is it coincidental? that beautiful virgins would be the ones that would awaken desire and that they were often the ones sacrificed. The turning of the valence from positive to negative is the easiest task in the world. Uh, one wonders, does this story have, what does this story have to do with us? Well, maybe it's obvious what it has to do with us, but my friend Jim Steinwoodell sent me an article from the New Yorker, last week's New Yorker, an article entitled The War of All Against All by Louis Menand. And uh, Menand is talking about the, among other things, the relationship between sex and violence. And I'll just quote to you something he says and then come back to the story. And I do this simply by way of, I do this simply in order to underscore for a second the contemporary significance of this story. Menand writes, several relationships between sex and violence are theoretically possible. The first is antithetical. Quote, if there were more sex, there would be less violence or, parentheses, the poster version, make love not war. The second, which has made trouble for us in the past, takes the form of violence is sexy. Then there is the combination we find ourselves currently committed to. Sex is violence. How did we end up living in a world governed by an equation like this? The vocabulary we used to talk about sex and the vocabulary we used to talk about violence have somehow merged with the weird result that both are a lot less glamorous than they used to be. We no longer think violence is sexy, which is a nice development, but we no longer think sex is particularly sexy either. Our language is somehow preventing us from making distinctions we used to be able to make. Between what? Sex and violence. Now, our confusion is not language. This is, he makes the same mistake that the philosophers and the, and the literary theorists make, that our confusion has to do with the with the indeterminacy of language, you see. It's not that at all. It, or if it is, it's not because we, we can't understand either sex or violence or the relationship between them. It, if there's a word we don't understand, it's desire. And if we understood that, then this link between sex and violence would become clearer to us. And I take, I take uh, Minad's article as an indication, one of the thousands that you see almost all, every day, that this confusion that exists in our time right now between uh, sex and violence is one that results from a confusion that we harbor about the nature of desire. We don't understand that desire is aroused by the conspicuous display of another's desire. Madison Avenue understands it. 
and uh, the, our, our whole economic system is based on it, but we still haven't thematized it enough. Girard has, but it, we're just now beginning to, to understand the significance, I think, of what he's done. So this is, when we say desire, we should be thinking of that and not of something that is, that is strictly erotic or, or certainly not something that's autonomous and spontaneous, but something that is awakened by the presentation of another desire. Let me close with something that uh, Minaj said in that same article about the uh, famous or infamous Antioch College sex code, you know, which got a lot of uh, uh, coverage in the press because it was an attempt. It, it, the Antioch College sex code is a classic case, and there are lots of them around, of um, people who say, you know, Jeremiah mocks at his people. He says, you, you threw off the yoke and said, I will not serve, and now you're bowing down before every idol on every high hill. Uh, the Antioch Sex Code is a classic example of, of people who say, well, I'm not going to obey any of those rules, and pretty soon they're just encumbered with these little tedious rules that are absolutely suffocating. <laughs> so anyway, uh, here's what Menad said. The telling thing about the public debate over the Antioch rules is how often the the code is evaluated, even by people who dislike it, as an intended contribution to the erotic life. What almost nobody points out is that the rules aren't about sex at all. They aren't conceived out of a desire to make sex more enjoyable or even out of a desire to make sex less enjoyable. They are conceived out of a fear of violence. The assumption that sexual relations among students at a progressive liberal arts college should be thought of as per se fraught with the potential for violence is now taken for granted by just about everyone, end quote. This, what does this have to do with the story of Susanna and Daniel 13? Well, I, I, I leave it to you. But the point is that we're in a terrible state of confusion in our world because we don't understand desire. And therefore, when things start out with desire and end up with violence, we, don't, we can't figure out how it got there. And... And so we start thinking, well, maybe sex is violent or maybe violence is sexual or, you see? And then we breed these absolute, this, this steamy theories, you know, like Foucault and so on. Crazy theories in order to try to put these two things together. When what we have to understand is desire, the nature of desire. So the problem is not sexuality. Sexuality doesn't lead to violence. Desire leads to violence. And not erotic desire, but mimetic desire. So back to Daniel 13. It says, so they waited for a favorable moment. So now we're back to the two, two guys who have inflamed each other's desire for Susanna. They avoided open rivalry and conflict by turning Susanna into their common victim. And we can't, shouldn't miss that just because their crime will be a sexual one. So they waited for a favorable moment. And then she's bathing in her garden and she has her two her two servants, and she sends them off because she wants to be alone in their garden. There she is, perfect. She's bathing, uh, and, and nobody's around. So the two elders say to each other, Look, the garden door is shut. No one can see us. And, and they rush to her. We want to have you, so give in and let us. Remember, notice it's all, being, it's all in the plural. It's all in the plural. It's absolutely appropriate. Refuse, and we will both give evidence that a young man was with you. And that was why you sent your maids away. She, in other words, they would accuse her of adultery, which is a capital crime. She would be 
stoned to death. So what's happening here? What's happening is they are cementing their relationship, we, us, we, us, we, us, at her expense. She will either sacrifice her virtue or her life. And Susanna sighed, I'm trapped, whatever I do, if I agree, that means my death. If I resist, I cannot get away from you. But I prefer to fall innocent into your power than to sin in the eyes of the Lord. And there again, Susanna is living in the eyes of the Lord. And she cried out. And they started crying out. And then you get the, this is very Shakespearean. This is very Shakespearean. So they're, she's making a big hullabaloo trying to get people to come. And as soon as people come, they start condemning her and saying, oh, we saw this man running away and and uh, she's committing adultery and so on. So the next day they have the meeting. And the meeting's held at the house of Joachim. Of course, all of these arbitrations are. The two elders arrive in their vindictiveness determined to have her put to death. Now, has, something, has anything fundamentally changed from the day before when they were term, determined to rape her? No. It hasn't fundamentally changed. Remember, we have to diagram these things. We, it's, it's not a question. We're not talking psychology. We're not talking about psychological nuance here. But if you look at what's happening in terms of the victimization process, the very fact that the one the, the, the day before was predominantly sexual and the one today is predominantly violent should not, should not blur the fact that both were, exact, were structurally identical. You see what I'm saying? It simply changed. The, the nature of the desire has simply changed from positive to negative, but it's the same process. It's the same structure. So the two elders address the company. Summon Susanna, daughter of Hilkiah, and wife of Joachim. Now this was really quite striking, I think, this passage. She was sent for and came, accompanied by her parents, her children, and her relations. Now, this is an important feature here because... She, she's, she's accompanied by people who know her and love her and regard her as one of theirs. So this presents a difficulty for people who are trying to load onto her the sacrificial appetite of the crowd that's being awakened, A, by a sort of general sacrificial crisis that we... If, if Hammer and Kelly's right, as soon as you get the doubling, as soon as you see doubles developing in the world, you know that there's sacrificial crisis. There's a there's a brewing sacrificial crisis, and these two elders represent the doubling process. But also, uh, they, these two elders now are going to try to inflame that sacrificial appetite more and more and direct it towards Susanna. But her her relatives will will become a complicating factor in that process. But then there's this absolutely marvelous and at first inexplicable passage. Susanna was very graceful and beautiful to look at. She was veiled. So the two elders made her unveil in order to feast their eyes on her beauty. And you would say, wait a minute, why would they make her unveil? Now, in order to feast their eyes on her beauty, that's a little strange. It's un, the reason this is unintelligible to us 
is because we don't realize how volatile mimetic fascination is, how fickle it is, which is also why we can't understand why so many ancient cultures sacrificed beautiful virgins. We don't realize that this is part of the process of awakening fascination. Beauty and virginity, think of Tezcatlipoca in that Toltec story that I tell often, or Iphigenia in, in Aeschylus' Agamemnon, or Billy Budd, I'm going to talk about Billy Budd in a few minutes, or Patroclus. Beauty and virginity can be used to focus mimetic fascination. And once that fascination is unanimous, changing its valence from positive to negative is easy. That's the easiest thing in the world. Uh, ask the sort of slash-and-burn journalist, uh, you know, the talk, so, talk show journalist, how easy it is to, to change it from positive to negative. You see, you would think her beauty would be a hindrance to their accusation, or you would think at least they would see that it is and therefore would be happy to have her be veiled. But no, if she were ugly, it would do the same thing. If she were really ugly, they would unveil her for the same reason, you see? Because the fascination would attach to her ugliness. And all, we, all they're looking for in the first instance is fascination. Because you can sacralize fascination. You can demonize fascination. Uh, it's something you can work with in the sacrificial realm. And so they expose her extraordinary beauty. But this is not without risk. And there are plenty of risk for them in the current situation. The next verse says, All her own people were weeping, and so were the others who saw her. The two, so you have a problem here. And the pro, all sacrificial priests have this problem. The, the sacrificial liturgy is always fraught with the danger that it will not achieve unanimity. Unanimity is just a synonym for catharsis. If it fails to achieve catharsis, if it fails to achieve unanimity, it might explode and become an event rather than a liturgy. It might become a social, historical event, a spontaneous social event, a riot or something. There's plenty of examples of that in the... in. Uh, all over the place in the biblical literature there's plenty of examples of liturgies getting out of hand and people dying <clears throat> so there's this if you think of this now as a sacrificial event it's very precarious can they achieve unanimity that's the key to the whole thing and if you think that my talking about this social event in sacrificial terms is misplaced the very next verse reads as follows the two elders stood up now did they? Was this what they were going to do anyway? I don't know. Imagine the two elders are there. They see the relatives of Susanna weeping. And other people, seeing them weeping, begin to weep as well. So that suddenly, for these two men, things are getting out of hand. They, had, they took the veil off, and uh, the fascination went towards Susanna, but a, a good deal of that fascination was empathetic. So this is a tremendous complication. So what do they do? The two elders stand up with all the people around them and laid their hands on the woman's head. 
This is a sacrificial gesture, a liturgical gesture. And I'm just, just to fill, fill you in on this, I'm going to read to you a few little things from uh, the book of Leviticus to give you, to let you know that we're in the orbit of sacrificial ritual here. In chapter 1 of Leviticus, when any of you brings an offering to Yahweh, he can offer an animal from either herd or flock. If his offering is a holocaust of an animal out of the herd, he is to offer a male without blemish. It is to be offered at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that, he may be, so that it may be accepted before Yahweh. He is to lay his hands on the victim's head and it shall be accepted as effectual for his atonement. There are lots and lots and lots of examples of this. In another one it says, If the one who sins is the anointed priest, thus making the people guilty, then for the sin which he has committed, he is to offer to Yahweh a young bull, an animal from the herd without blemish, as a sacrifice for sin. Notice, an animal without blemish. Is that related structurally, structurally, to the unveiling of the beautiful Susanna? You see what I'm saying? An animal without blemish. And then it goes on to say, this is Leviticus. He is to bring the bull before Yahweh at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to lay his hands on the head and immolate it before Yahweh. In the scapegoat ritual, in Leviticus 16, there are two goats in the scapegoat ritual. One is sacrificed and one is sent into the desert. Of, of the latter, it says in Leviticus 16, Aaron must lay his hands on its head and confess all the faults of the sons of Israel all their transgressions and all their sins and lay them to its charge and send it into the desert. An even more appropriate one to the, to the story of Susanna perhaps is in Leviticus 24. Yahweh says to Moses, if someone blasphemes, here's what you should do. Take the man who has pronounced the curse outside the camp, let all who have heard him lay hands on his head and let the whole community stone him. The laying on of hands, of course, is also an ordination ritual. Priests and kings are ordained by the laying on of hands. In the New Testament, laying on of hands is a healing gesture. So we have a gesture that is sacrificial in the first instance and then has to do with ordination, has to do with kingship, has to do with uh, priesthood, and then later in the New Testament has to do with healing. The fact that this ritual is, the laying on of hands is, a healing ritual in the New Testament may seem at first confusing, but it's no more confusing than the fact that, this, that the Eucharist has sacrificial overtones. Nobody in their right mind, I, I'm a, I should say there have been plenty of people in our world who've done this, but nobody who reads the New Testament uh, as a whole would, could possibly argue that the, that the Eucharist is, is a cannibalistic, okay, or even sacrificial. It has sacrificial overtones, but because it has to have sacrificial overtones, if we're going to cure ourselves of this disease, the cure is going to have to be homeopathic. And so we will have, there will always have to be a, a sacrificial uh, innuendo in the very thing that we're curing. And so the, the healing in New Testament, which is almost always forgiveness, almost always has an element of forgiveness in it, involves the laying on of hands as well. If the laying on the hands is the is the process of passing on the Spirit. And the sharing in the Eucharist is the process of, of, uh, of bringing the Spirit of the risen Christ into the community. Both of those gestures have very 
discernible sacrificial overtones. The fact that they have sacrificial overtones should not lead us to the conclusion that no fundamental break has been made in the, in the process because the veil of the temple is rent. There's been a fundamental break. And now the question, it's like the question of Cain. You can't get out of the world of sacrifice by simply dropping it entirely. That's why we still talk about the sacrifice of the mass. We still talk, we still talk about sacrifice, but we talk about it's been Christianized. The whole idea of sacrifice is self-sacrifice. And it's absolutely appropriate that we haven't given up that term. It's absolutely appropriate there's a sacrificial overtones in the Eucharist and that there's sacrificial overtones in the laying on of hands because the, the process of, cure, of being cured by the biblical revelation is a, pro, is a homeopathic process. It always takes a little dose of the disease to cure us. I, I think that's borne out in our, in our history and in our experience and our liturgy and our symbolism. So, tearfully, Susanna turned her eyes to heaven. Again, that's what these two elders could not do. And what does that mean? That means she doesn't get scandalized. She doesn't get scandalized. The only people who don't get scandalized are those who have, who, who have the experience of transcendence in their lives. Now, that sounds a little dogmatic to say it that way or unequivocal, but I, I would say I would say that's true. I would say that's what the biblical tradition tells us, that ultimately the only people who are not scandalized are people who have a transcendence, uh, who experience transcendence in their lives. So she turned her eyes to heaven. The elders then told their story, which is she's been committing adultery. Since, reading from the story, since they were elders of the people and judges, the assembly took their word. Susanna was, was condemned to death. She cried out, however, Eternal God, you know that they have given false evidence against me, and now I have to die, innocent as I am of everything their malice has invented against me. So, listen to the way the story of Daniel has it. The Lord heard her cry. The biblical God hears the cry of the victim. That's what the psalmists always say. The psalms, so many of the psalms are written by those who are being hemmed in by the mob. And they know exactly to whom to address their prayer, namely the biblical God. Now the fact that that same God may have been addressed in the prayer of those who wanted to smote the Ammonites shouldn't... shouldn't this, the, the, the Hebrew Scriptures is what Gerard calls a text in travail. It's a text in between the, the, the old anthropos and the new anthropos, what Paul calls the old anthropos and the new anthropos, the old human and the new. It's a text in movement from one to the other. So it's, it, you see features of everything. But the, but the psalmist, the, those great psalms of the, uh, of, of the, of the victim hounded by his, his tormentors in the psalms, Obviously, it's the biblical God who hears the prayer of the victim. And here it is. The Lord heard her cry. And as she was being led away to die, he roused the Holy Spirit residing in a young man named Daniel. Now, this is the same Holy Spirit that the, that the Gospel of John calls the paraclete. And the word means the, 
lawyer for the accused. It's the opposite of the word Satan. Satan means the accuser. The biblical God heard the victim's cry and aroused the Holy Spirit. And where would the, where, if the biblical God were looking for the Holy Spirit in order to get the Holy Spirit aroused to do something about this victimization, where would he find the Holy Spirit? In the heart of a young man named Daniel. Now what does Daniel do? Daniel shouted out, I am innocent of this woman's death. If you'll remember, at the arrest of Jesus in Mark's gospel, everybody flees except this one strange figure who's dressed in linen, and he follows Jesus 30 seconds longer than the rest of them, and then the crowd grabs at him and snatches his little linen garment away, and he runs away naked. And as I said, I think this figure is is those of us Christians who try to, f who recognize the innocence of the victim and who try to uh, imitate the victim by declaring our own innocence. It's a ruse which falls apart very quickly as soon as a mob comes along and grabs at us. So I would say here you have a kind of, a kind of anticipation of that. Because Daniel says, I am innocent of this woman's death. At which the people turned to him and said, what do you mean? And then he begins to become something else than that. He moves into the center of the crowd, standing in the middle of the crowd, which is the hot spot. Because if the crowd does, if it is about to reach its sacrificial climax, the man in the middle is going to get it. So he stands in the place of the victim. And he says, Are you so stupid, sons of Israel, to condemn a daughter of Israel unheard and without troubling to find out the truth, and so on and so forth? This is the beginning of due process. This is the Hebrew version of what happens in Aeschylus when the Furies are transformed into the Eumenides. This is when the mob violence is, becomes some kind of process, a juridical process. This is the movement from sacrifice to, to criminal justice. Now, criminal justice has a very strong sacrificial feature to it. But the movement from sacrifice to criminal justice is no small matter. It's an enormous historical and moral leap. But since I'm mentioning Aeschylus, you know, the movement from the Furies to the Eumenides in Aeschylus, that is to say from a sacrificial system to a system of, uh, of justice and law, which has sacrificial features to it, doesn't occur in a vacuum because uh, in that play Aeschylus says, we can end the civil war in Athens. We will end the civil war in Athens when all the Athenians learn to hate their foreign enemies with a single soul. In other words, it's not, you, one doesn't eliminate the sacrificial impulse. One simply finds another venue for its expression, which uh, leaves the domestic social scene intact. You see, you see that? Well, there's some of that in this story. 
this again shows the mimetic nature of this kind of phenomenon. You know, everybody's about to go along with it. There's a kind of momentum. Uh, you know, the big mo, they used to call it in football jargon. <laughs> There's a kind of momentum here. And nobody is inclined to, to go against it. And it could, if it's allowed to continue to flow, it, it reaches cataract proportions and the sacrificial event occurs. And as the momentum is building up, suddenly there is someone who makes an objection and shatters the, the, the trance, so to speak. And suddenly the momentum, does it, it doesn't just sort of, you know, peter out and stop. It just changes direction. And so the very next verse says, all the people hurried back. And the elders said to Daniel, you come sit with us because you obviously know something and help us decide this case. But the fact that all the people hurried back, you have a sense that everybody's going out to the place of stoning and Daniel says his thing and suddenly they're coming back just as mimetically, just as uh, the tide has just turned, but it's still a tide. 